Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So, so here's my question for you. How many of you are in mood, the mood for a midsummer feel-good message? Oh, you know where I, you know where I'm going because this ain't the day. If that's what you came for, that, that is not what you're getting. Uh, my message today is entitled "A Biblical Guide to the Culture Wars," and the culture wars, in case you're not familiar with that term, has to do with the moral battles that rage underneath the surface in any uh, society. And of course, you know what they are: their abortion, their gay rights, their transgenderism. There's a definition of marriage. There's cancel culture. There's climate change. There's the redistribution of wealth. It's what's going on with the curriculum in the schools. If you lived south of the border, uh, it's, of course, gun control and immigration. And thanks to COVID-19, we've added masks and, and vaccine mandates and a whole other host of good things. Aren't these a lot of fun, these culture wars? Well... Whether they're fun or not, we have to learn how to deal with them, and that's what we're going to be talking about from a biblical perspective. Now, uh, where does this term come from? It's actually not an exactly a new phrase, uh, but it has become quite in use in our culture. And uh, in 1991, uh, there was a book written by James Davison Hunter called Culture Wars. Here's a picture of it. And he really popularized the term. And uh, it's an interesting book because it was 1991 before stuff really heated up. Up. And he warned of something that he called, he was using the term from Frederick Nietzsche, ressentiment, which is a French word for deep-seated resentment, hostility, and frustration, and feeling powerlessness as to know what to do with it. And so he warned that that's where it looked like our society was going with all of these culture wars that I just described. Now, uh, because he had written it in 1991, on the 30th anniversary, he was interviewed about his book because many of the things that he talked about, many of the things he projected and predicted actually came to pass. Now, full disclosure, I never read the book, but I read the interview with James Hunter, and I thought it was fascinating. And he gave a definition for democracy that I loved and I want to share it with you. Here it is. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. He says, democracy, in my view, is an agreement that we will not kill each other over our differences. But instead, we'll talk through those differences. And part of the, what's troubling is that I'm beginning to see signs of the justification for violence. And if you think about the last few years, doesn't it kind of feel like that? I mean, we used to be able to have civil discourse on any subject under the sun. We can no longer just talk about things. We can no longer talk about our differences. What we have now is you have people yelling at each other and people arguing and fighting. And of course, signs of violence. Tell me about it. What we've seen with riots and, and statues being torn down and vandalism. We've seen all that stuff in the last couple of years. And so something really significant is happening in our world. And I feel it's incumbent upon us, the church to try to get a biblical handle on what it all means for us. Now, culture wars, like any wars, people pick sides, right? In a war, people pick sides. So we have the war in Ukraine, and what did people do? Well, the West and, and, and Canada in particular, we picked Ukraine. And for you, most of you in this room, probably all of you, you thought that was the right choice. Do you know there are nations that picked Russia? I mean, Armenia is one of them, Belarus is another one, Kazakhstan is another one. 
Isn't that Borat guy the president of Kazakhstan? Or is that, is that a movie or something? I don't know. Uh, but anyway, so people pick sides. And so when it comes to the culture wars, every single one of you on those issues that I mentioned, every single one of you has picked a side. You may not argue about it, but you've picked a side. You have opinions. And if I began to you know, talk to you, you either took this side on this issue or this side on that issue. It's just what we do. It's human nature. But here's what's interesting about Christians. In fact, it's a little funny on one level, is that we always seem to be on the losing side of these culture wars. Have you noticed that? We, I've been in ministry 40 years, and I have been involved in the culture wars because I think there's a, a need for us to be involved with them. And I'll explain that in my message today. And I would say that I don't think I've, I've won a single one of them. I think I've been on the losing side of every single one. We lost the abortion debate. We lost the definition of marriage debate. We lost the medically assisted suicide debate. We lost the legalizing of cannabis debate. We lost well, a long time ago Sunday shopping. And, and of course, we lost the prayer in schools. Uh, we've lost every single debate in my 40 years of ministry. Now, I did see a bumper sticker the other day. It always encouraged me. And it says this. As long as there is exams, there will always be prayer in schools. <laughs> so, so we always have the bumper stickers staying on to. Actually, that's not my favorite story. Here's my favorite story. So there's this university class, big theater, dozens and dozens, hundreds of students. They're writing a final exam. The professor says this. When the buzzer goes, the exam is over. Every pen must be put down. If you do not stop writing at the buzzer, it's an automatic fail. So they're all writing the exam. The buzzer goes. Everybody puts down their pen. They come to the front. They hand in the exams, a big stack of exams. One guy just keeps on writing. He goes on for about another 30 or 40 seconds. He was almost done, so he wanted to finish. He comes rushing up. He says, sorry, professor, I was late. He said, were you not listening? I said, when the buzzer goes, it's an automatic fail. You've failed. To which the young man says to the professor, do you know who I am? To which the professor says, I have no idea. To which the young man says, good, and slips his paper right in the middle of the other one. (laughs) Booyah! (laughs) So again, my message is entitled, The The Biblical Guide to Culture Wars. And our text today is out of 1 Peter, and I'll tell you what I like about it. It's, It's how to lose at the culture wars. I mean, it's sort of funny. I mean, Peter kind of assumes you're going to lose, and so here's how you do it. And so he gives us this advice because they're getting beaten up, the Christians, the early Christians. Peter writes this letter to them. It's fascinating. So here it is. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says this. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from freshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation." Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolishness of men. (laughs) Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on there. The first of all, he begins by saying this, look, you guys are just passing through. 
You're just sojourners. You're just pilgrims. So don't get too caught up in the earthly battle because you may actually lose the earthly battle, which they were. The early Christians were treated with absolute contempt because of their lifestyle. They did not embrace the, the heathen gods. They did not view Caesar as divine. They had, a, had, they had abandoned the Roman gods. In fact, here's an irony for you. Do you know that the Christians in the early church were called unbelievers? Because they didn't believe in Caesar and the Roman gods. They were the unbelievers. And anyway, they were getting really uh, abused. They were getting mistreated, persecuted. They were getting thrown to the lions. All true stuff. In fact, here's what Peter says. If you keep reading, it's kind of funny. Because they were getting literally beaten for their faith. And he says to them, look, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, look, if you get beaten because of your bad behavior, that's on you, pal. But if you're getting beaten for doing good works... That's commendable to God. (laughs) Really. So if I'm getting beaten up for my faith, that's a good thing? Yes, that is a good thing. Like that slogan on on the pirate galley ship, the beatings will continue until morale improves, right? And so when we look at the culture wars, how are we going to fight the culture wars? How are we going to do this? Notice this, that my message is not how to win the culture wars. Did you notice that? Because I don't know if we're going to win this war, but I think we still have to fight it. You know, I used to say this. I used to love to quote Paul. Paul used to say this, fight the good fight of faith. You all know that. And I used to say the only good fight is the fight you win, right? But I don't say that anymore because it's not true. You know what the good fight of faith is? It's the fight you fight whether you win or not because it's worth fighting. That's what the good fight of faith is. And sometimes you are not going to win. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you three things that I find in the passage, and I've kind of packaged them my own way. But here they are, the biblical guide to culture wars. Number one, you need to lay down your carnal weapons. Number two, you need to live out your beliefs regardless of what the world is doing. And number three, you need to let your conduct do the speaking for you. So we begin with this, that what we need to do is we need to lay down our carnal weapons what does the scripture tell us? That your, the, your our weapons of your warfare are not what? Carnal, but mighty in the Lord for the pulling down of strongholds. So we have to remember that our weapons are not primarily earthly or carnal. And that's what he's telling them here. When he says to them, don't let your fleshly lusts destroy or war against your soul. He's actually not talking about sexual immorality. He's actually talking about, don't let this resentment, don't let this hostility and this frustration get the best of you. Don't stoop to other people's level, is what he's saying. He says, you can't fight their fight their way. And see, a lot of times we do that. What we do is we take the bait. So let me tell you a little story about taking the bait that I know will amuse all of you. So when I was about 12 years old, I had these two guys, these two boys I walked home from school every day with. I wasn't in their class. I wasn't even in their grade. They were a year older than me. But we both lived, we all lived on the same street, all three of us. We walked home together. And uh, their names were Al and Sean. And Al was a real piece of work. And uh, Al was a real mouthpiece. And uh, we were walking home one day. And Al says to me, you know Sean's the strongest guy in the school. You know Sean could beat anybody up in this, in this school. You know Sean could beat you up. Why did I take the bait? Why did I take the bait? I say that now. And I say, I'm not sure he could. He says, you don't think you could? And I said, no, I don't think Sean could beat me up. He says, well, why don't you fight him and find out? Right? And so then, then he kept on on me. And he kept on goading me into it. And so finally I said, okay, 
I'll fight him, but I want to set the rules. I just watched Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid where Butch Cassidy was trying to set the rules for the knife fight. So I said, okay, I'll set the rules. There'll be no punching in the face, and then I'll fight him. Now, I understood, even at 12 years old, that one day I was going to be famous and standing before television cameras, and I need all these teeth. See those perfect white teeth? I mean, they didn't happen by accident. I kept people's fists off of them. Well, at least most of the time. So anyway, I said, okay, I'll fight you. I was imagining body blows like this, right? So I said, I'll fight him as long as there's no punching in the face. The whole time, Sean's not do- saying anything. Al's doing all the talking. So, so anyway, we, 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 we held up our dukes like this. Guess what happened? Guess what happened? Hey, he sucker punched me right in the face. Boom, first punch right in the face. And by this time, we were right in front of our, our house. So I just ran in the house. And my lip was bleeding. and My teeth were sore and stuff. I wasn't very happy about it. So the next day, this will get, help some of you women understand the psychology of men, by the way. So the next day, I'm walking home from school with Al and Sean. It's what guys do, you know. By the next day, you're okay. And we're walking home from school, and Al starts going on about how Sean beat me up the day before and how he's the strongest guy in the school and how he beat me up. I said, he didn't beat me up. He broke the rules. The rules were no punching in the face. He punched me right in the face. He says, he punched you in the face and you ran into the house like a girl. And then he says, if you don't believe that, why don't you fight him again? Now, this is just going to reveal how stupid I really am. And so I said, I am like Charlie Brown with Lucy and the football. You all know that story. And I said, okay, I will fight him again as long as he doesn't punch me in the face. Right? You all following this? So he agreed. Al agreed, not Sean. Sean didn't say a word. So anyway, away we went again. Pow! Second time in the face. Here's the thing about bullies that maybe you don't know. They don't keep the rules. They're goons for a reason. They don't keep the rules. And he punched me in the face the second time. This time he split my lip open and knocked both my front teeth loose. And they're just dangling, barely loose like this. I ran in the house. My parents were really mad at me. I had to go to the dentist and get an appliance to hold them in place while they healed. And if the dentist hadn't saved these teeth, you would not be standing before me. (laughs) It was all of that dentist saved my bacon. I thought, I'm never letting anybody punch me in the face again. But the big question is this. I got goaded into something. I got tricked into something. I stooped to his level. And, And here's what happens. When we begin to fight with the carnal weapons, the natural weapons, when we begin to fight the same way everybody else is, we're going to lose. Now, I have a great little video to show you. You're going to love this video. This is called The Schoolboy. He is an arm wrestler, and he's taking on in this video the number one bodybuilder in the world at the time, Larry Wheeler. You got to love it. Watch this. Ready? Hello? How many of you love that? You think, what's going on? How does like, the strongest guy in the world practically not be able to beat that guy? Because that guy didn't use the same technique as Larry. Larry just used brute strength, and he didn't win. And the thing that he maybe doesn't know about the schoolboy, the schoolboy who goes around winning these things all day long, is that his brother was a champion arm wrestler, trained him from 10, 12 years old, and now this guy that doesn't look like he's going to win is just beating guys twice his size. And we reminds us a little bit 
of the story of David and Goliath. We all know the story of David and Goliath. We all know that David defeated Goliath, but he almost made a lethal error. Who remembers what it was? What was the lethal error that David almost made? Saul's armor, exactly. When he showed up, when he agreed to go into battle, he had this feeling, this sense, this faith that he was going to be able to defeat this man. But what he does is he puts on Saul's armor. Saul, of course, was head and shoulders above any man in Israel. He's he's probably a foot taller than David. He puts on this giant armor. He he can't even move in it. He's like R2-D2 or C-3PO, I guess. And he's walking like a robot. And he realizes if he goes into battle with that armor on, what's going to happen? He's going to lose. And he did not go in with the carnal weapons. In fact, you remember what he said. He said to Goliath, he said, you come to me with spear and sword and javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of the hosts of the armies of Israel. And it was because he went in the name of the Lord that he defeated Goliath. His victory came from above, not because he fell into the trap of this military battle, right? Even though he won, even though he killed him, even though he defeated him. And there's a great lesson for us to understand in this that that our job here is not to try to win the earthly wars with the earthly weapons. We're moving at a much higher level. So here's what I want to do. I want to describe the battles to you, the three battlegrounds as I see them. It's a bit of a metaphor, a bit of a parallel, parable. And here it is. I want to throw it up on the screen. So I want to talk about the cosmos, the climate, the weather, and then compare it to our, our battlefields. So if we were to look at the world, we all know what weather is. Weather blows in. Uh, it happens day by day. Weather changes how often? Every day? Every hour? You know, we have an expression in Winnipeg, if you don't like the weather, wait a minute. Because you don't know what's going to happen, right? And weather is like that. Weather is very unpredictable. It comes and goes or whatever. But see, here's the thing about weather. It's actually not determined uh, by, it doesn't determine itself. It's determined by the climate. And climate is far more important than weather. Because if you live in an arid climate, you're going to have arid weather. If you live in a rainforest climate, you're going to have rainy weather, right? And so weather doesn't affect climate. Climate affects weather. Am I right about that? And that's why the climatologists, they don't worry about a bad snowstorm. They don't worry about a bad day of rain or a bad week of rain or even a bad month of rain. They worry about the overall climate. Now, there's something even higher and above that, and it's the cosmos. And it's the rotation of the earth and the orbit of the sun, and it's the the moon and the stars and the alignment. And God, in his infinite wisdom, has orchestrated the universe, the cosmos, in such a way that the planet Earth is the only place in the Milky Way that can sustain human life. Because all of that hangs in the balance. And God did that. And and so the cosmos affects the climate, and the climate affects the weather. Are Are you tracking with me so far? So here's where I want to go about these these levels of warfare. Because, see, politics is like weather. It changes every day, doesn't it? Why do you have to watch the news every single night? Because whatever happened yesterday changed today. Politics is fleeting. It's ephemeral. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone, and it changes. And it doesn't matter how big of a scandal, just like weather. Like, if you have a huge snowstorm, what do we do? We talk about it for two days, and then a week later, we've forgotten about it right? Huge rainstorm, huge thunderstorm. We talk about it for a couple of days and we forget about it. 
It's just momentary is what it is. And politics is the same way. And so something happens, and, and we think it's the end of the world because something happened politically. Remember we had the, the S&C-Lavalin scandal in Canada, and it was the big deal, you know, all this stuff, and there was these hearings and all of this, and, and everybody said the government's going to go down, you know, this is the end of them. Well, then COVID happened, and people forgot about the S&C-Lavalin scandal. In fact, I bet there's very few people in this room that could tell me what the ultimate conclusion to that story was about S&C. Maybe a few, but probably not most of you. And so then the next election came along, the narrative had changed, the same government got reelected. nobody even talked about SNC-Lavalin, right? That's politics for you. It's just momentary. Now, climate is something at another level altogether, just as culture is. See, politics is affected by our culture, and our culture is affected by our spiritual cosmos. See, our battle, this is what he says, and I'll repeat it. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in the Lord for the pulling down of strongholds. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against uh, spiritual hosts of wickedness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know the story. And so when we look at the, at, at the world, we recognize this. We're not going to win all the earthly battles. So we need to be careful how we engage them. And our ultimate battle is that one. Here's the good news. I've read, read the end of the book. Guess what? Who wins in the end? We do. We win. This is the good news. The bad news is you're going to lose a whole bunch of battles along the way. So let me, let me give you a practical illustration about this. So, so the Christians were pretty buoyed, pretty excited when uh, the Supreme Court of the U.S. overturned Roe versus Wade. Now, Roe v. Wade had been in place since 1973. It guaranteed the right of women in the U.S. to have an abortion. It was there for years and years, decades and decades. And here's what happened. During the Trump administration, President Trump padded the Supreme Court with conservative justices. They reviewed it, and they looked at Roe v. Wade, and they actually made the proper conclusion on this, that the Constitution of the U.S. does not actually guarantee abortion rights. Does not. And it certainly doesn't guarantee rights of abortion in the first trimester, which is specifically what Roe v. Wade said. And so in a very logical, very rational uh, uh, movement, they actually overturned this decades-old ruling within the Supreme Court. Of course, you know the story. All hell broke loose. Now, the Christians, on the other hand, they have been They've been encouraged by that. And I am too in one sense because here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a bunch of innocent, unborn lives that are going to be saved as a result of it. We see that if you look at this map here, here's all the states. If you look real closely there, the ones that are planning on banning abortions or have already banned abortion. And so a whole bunch of unborn lives will be saved in the U.S. But here's the bigger problem, people. This is a political battle and a political victory that will not last. And I'll tell you why. You're not going to like to hear this. But we did not win the cultural war. 55% of Americans are still pro-choice. 73% of Canadians are pro-choice. And the reason we can't win this battle ultimately is because the battle is really for the hearts and minds of individuals. And you cannot win it in the political arena. This is why Jesus ultimately stayed out of the politics. They tried to drag him in. I'm telling you, they did. And I think the most famous story of them all is when they came up to Jesus, that was the Pharisees, and they said to him, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? 
Let me tell you why that was a political question. If he said, yes, it's lawful, then what he was doing is he was validating the Roman occupation of Israel, right? If he said, no, you don't have to pay taxes, then what he was doing was encouraging lawlessness and anarchy. So whatever answer he went with, he couldn't win. But you all remember what he did. Oh, Jesus is so smart. Don't you wish you were smart like Jesus? And Jesus pulls out a coin and he holds it up and he says, whose image is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, then render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God's. What a beautiful answer. And, and, and that kind of wisdom and that kind of deftness is the kind of subtlety that we as Christians need to embrace because we're not going to win this if we just strictly use the carnal weapons. You know, here's a great irony that, that most people haven't really realized. Do you know that Jesus was crucified for a political crime? You say, say what? Do you, think they were criti- Do you think they were crucifying everybody? Do you think if you stole a loaf of bread, they crucified you for that? That would be way too much trouble. They just cut your throat. They just you know, threw you, you know, to the lions. They weren't crucifying you. Crucifixion, for the most part, was reserved for political insurgents. People who were uh, uh, dissidents against the Roman occupation, and they crucified them in a public place so all people would see them as a deterrent and as an example. This is what happens to you when you defy the government, when you defy the Roman occupation. And you see, don't forget what the, the crime was. What, was. what was he being convicted of? What was he on trial for? The question repeatedly asked by Pilate was this, are you the king of the Jews? Why is that a political question? Because there already was a king of the Jews. His name was Herod. And if you're the king of the Jews, then that is usurping the authority of the king and it's worthy of execution. And Jesus, once again, very smart, he said this. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Had my kingdom, if it was of this world, my servants would fight. But my kingdom is not from here. Now, they crucified him anyway, but that's another story. The point was that he recognized where the battle was. He had to fight, which he was, by the way. The crucifixion was a spiritual victory, ultimately. We all know the rest of the story on that. But don't miss what I'm trying to say. He, they tried to drag him down to that level again and again and again. And as a result of that, had, had they done that, it would have diminished his message. See, let, let me give you an example about this. Some of you aren't going to like it, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, what happened during the Trump era was not a good season for evangelicals in the U.S. And I'll tell you why. They saw Trump as their proxy. They saw Trump as their opportunity to seize raw political power as Christians. And they jumped in, not all of them, but many of them jumped in behind them. And because the American public is divided 50-50 on their politics, what the church did was they alienated 50% of their constituency. Aren't we supposed to be reaching all people? Isn't that our job with the gospel? Don't we have to try to reach? And if we offend people, if, we are, if they're disgusted and despise us, we're not going to be able to reach them. And I think that's what happened during that season, whether you like it or not. I think if you look at it, I don't think it was a good season for us. Now, if you're not clear on that, I want to give you another illustration. You're going to like this one. So I, I, let, me, let me just pause for a moment. I'm not dissing politics. I think Christians in particular, on an individual basis, 
should go into politics. I think it's good if you want to join a political party. I think it's even better if you want to run for a political party. Because if our voice isn't around the table, we're not being heard. So it's a good place for you to be. And some of you are called to fight that political battle. But here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to wrap your faith and your politics together in an inextricable way that people can't tell the difference one from the other. And when you identify with a political party and your faith all as one thing, if they don't like your politics, they're not going to like your faith. Do you follow me on this? And here's my illustration I want to give you. It's a good one. So supposing I was selling used cars. Could you imagine me selling used cars? I'd be very good at it. Thank you very much. But, but, but in order to sell lots of used cars, I want a good name. So I'm going to call my used car lot, Jesus Christ Blessed Used Cars. I'm going to wrap my faith all around my used cars. Now, if I'm selling used cars that I call Jesus Christ Blessed Used Cars, is there a chance... Like, maybe it's a far chance that someone might buy a lemon from me. Yeah, if I'm selling cars, they're all lemons. I mean, yeah, right? I mean, there's a good chance someone's going to get a lemon. And if I call them Jesus Christ blessed cars, guess what? They're not very blessed with Jesus Christ because his cars suck, right? And so here's what, that's what happens. We have to be careful what we do with our faith. We need to be, here, let me just land it with this. We need to be Christians first and everything else a distant second. How many are with me on this? Speaking of buying cars, you know you can't even buy a car anymore, right? Supply chain thing, you go down to the dealership. Yeah, we'd love to sell you that car, we don't have one. So this guy goes down to the lot, finds the model he wants, he orders the model, he gets the financing all in place, and then the salesman says to you, and we will be able to uh, deliver this car exactly three years from today. And the guy goes, three years? And then he says, are you going to deliver in the morning or the afternoon? And the salesman says, what difference does it make? It's three years from now. He says, yeah, yeah, but I got the cable guy coming in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) So the first thing is this. The first thing, the big thing, is that we have to lay aside our, our carnal weapons. The second thing is that we have to live out our faith irrespective of what the rest of the world is doing. And when we look at what Peter was telling these Christians, he was saying, look, you've got to live in an honorable way. And you've got to do good. And no matter how badly you're mistreated and how they're holding you in contempt, you don't have an option here. You have to live out your life. And so maybe we can't win all the arguments. But you know what he tells us? He's essentially saying that your conduct's going to go a long way. And you have got to live out your faith. And if you don't live out your faith, you are compromising it and you will never accomplish anything. And see, a lot of people don't understand how Jesus rolled. And they think that Jesus was this loving and forgiving guy, particularly the moderns today. They think Jesus was kind of come one, come all, you know. He accepted everybody just as they were. Those same people need to go read the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is some pretty tough stuff. Have you noticed that? He starts off by saying, uh, talking about murder and about hatred and about anger and about adultery and about divorce and about vanity and about greed. He goes, goes on and on and on and on. And he never, never soft soaps the moral requirements of a Christian. And so people don't understand that, I don't think, totally. And so they say, well, Jesus was so loving and compassionate. He just sort of overlooked people and he knew people were flawed and he just accepted everyone just as they were. That's not true that Jesus accepted everyone just as they were. 
He received everybody just as they were, but he never left them the same as when they came. Am I right about that? I'll give you the most famous example is the woman caught in adultery. So she's caught in the act of adultery, which means the guy was caught too, right? If it was in the act, uh-huh. But anyway, who knows where he is? And so she's out in the middle of the crowd. They all have stones. They're going to stone her to death. And so then Jesus realizes he wants to rescue this woman. And he says to this crowd, let he is without sin cast the first stone. And so all the men, they drop their stones and they walk away and she's just left standing there. And he says to her, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none. To which he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, if you stop reading there, you've only read half the story. Because what is the very, very, very next line? Thank you. Go your way and sin no more. Go your way and sin no more. So he didn't accept her the way he was. He received her the way he was. But then he determined to try to help her change and become the woman that she was supposed to be. And I don't know. We don't know the end of the story. But I think there's a good chance that she never committed it again. Because she came within a whisker of losing her life. And Jesus rescued her. I believe that that person would have gone on because she had truth and love mixed together. And that was the secret to what Jesus did. So I want to tell you a really interesting story about this. So uh, a few weeks ago, I got this letter from a woman uh, in Winnipeg. She'd been following the stuff on social media. Some of you know that our Easter stuff, our presentations, uh, went viral on social media, on, on Twitter, on YouTube, all kinds of places. There was literally hundreds of thousands of people looking at this, and we had all kinds of attention as a result of it. And uh, this one particular woman had, had seen it, and she thought, this is a church that I might be interested in. So she wrote me a letter, and here's what she said to me. It's a very sincere letter. She said, uh, my question for you is, if me and my wife were to come to your church, would we, we, we be welcomed with open arms? She says, we tried several churches, and in every one of those churches, we felt shunned. Would we be welcomed with open arms in your church? And I knew that this was a sincere and genuine question. She wasn't baiting me or trolling me. And I needed to give her a sincere answer. And I said, I understand why those, those churches have, have shunned you or why you felt shunned in them. Because pretty much every evangelical church in Winnipeg is going to come from a perspective of supporting traditional marriage. But I said, here's the short answer. The short answer is if you come to our church, yes, we will welcome you with open arms. That's what I told her. I said, the more longer answer is this, is that every one of us come to Jesus as flawed individuals. Every one of us. The scripture says, for all sin and fallen short of the glory of God, there are none righteous, no, not one. Every single one of us came to this church as broken people. Every last one. And we all have our hang-ups. We all have our hurts. We all have our, our, our things that, that are less than reputable. And some of you are sexual sin, and some of you, it's, you know, mental sin, and some of you, it's relational sin, and some of you, it's addictions, and some of you, it's anger and hatred and greed and envy, and and the list goes on and on. There's not a single perfect person in this place. And I explained that to her. I said, we're all broken people. And so we all come with our hurts and our hangups and our brokenness, and yet Jesus will receive us, but he will not leave us that way. 
So here's my promise to you. If you come to our church, we will welcome you with open arms. But you need to be ready because every once in a while, there's a little bit of provocation from the pulpit, like today, for example, as to how we ought to live. And you see, I'm hoping if this woman shows up or if she's here today, I am hoping as a church, we welcome them with open arms. What do you think? Because every one of us is, is, is in exactly the same boat. So the first thing is this, is, is that, that we need to lay aside our carnal weapons. And then we need to live out our faith irrespective, regardless of what the world thinks of us. It doesn't matter. We have a responsibility. And then Peter goes on and he tells us that your conduct is what really matters. And so my third point is let your conduct do the speaking for you. And when we look at... Uh, what, I love what St. Um, Francis of Assisi said. He said, by all means, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. A bunch of you know that. And see, our words are not nearly as powerful as our actions, and that's what Peter is telling the early Christians. He says, look, they're going to see your good behavior, and by your good behavior and by your good works, you're going to silence their foolish ignorance. That's a strong statement because there is a lot of ignorant things about our world. But if you're telling people off, if you are combative, if you're antagonistic, if you are adversarial, who are you going to win to Christ? You're not going to accomplish it. Now, let me bring this message to an end here with with a couple of stories. So, uh, you know, some of you might recognize the name Brian Stiller. And Brian Stiller was the president of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada in the 80s and 90s. He was also the editor-in-chief of, of Faith Today. He was in the pitched battle, the culture war for abortion in Canada. We were right in the middle of it. I was part of that. Brian came. He spoke in this church a, a couple of times. His adversary, the main uh, sort of lightning rod of the other side of this debate, was Dr. Henry Morgenthaler. Some of you will remember that name. And Dr. Morgenthaler had set up 20 illegal clinics across Canada performing abortions. He had trained over 100 doctors to also perform these abortions. He went to prison twice because because he was breaking the law, but he was willing and prepared to fight this right to the end. And so this battle was going on, and Kathy and I were, were having dinner one night with Brian Stiller, and he told us a story that I don't think is out there, but I'm going to tell you because I can't keep a secret. And, uh, and he decided that he needed to understand, empathize with his adversary. And so he decided to take Dr. Morgenthaler for dinner. And the two of them sat down for dinner, and he thought, I need to know this man. I need to humanize this man. This man, you know, on a political and cultural level, is my adversary, but he's also someone that the Bible tells me what. The Bible says this. It says to love your enemies, overcome evil with good. It says, bless those who curse you. It says, do good to those who hate you. These people are not our adversaries, right? And so he recognized that. So he sat down with this man. He asked him to hear his story. And his story blew him away. Because what he didn't know at the time was that Dr. Henry Morgenthaler was a Holocaust survivor who had spent five years in the concentrations of Dachau and Auschwitz. And he had seen all the atrocities of the Nazis. And then he said this in the midst of the conversation. He said, I believe that the greatest evil is to take the life of another human being. And Brian Stiller was saying to himself, what? 
there's a great incongruence here, here on this. Like, that, isn't that what you do, taking the life of the unborn? And then he went on, and what he did was he compared the Gestapos taking people and, and putting them into concentration camps to what our political system was doing to women and saying they had to carry a baby to term even though they didn't want to. So that was his comparison in his mind. And here's what he recognized. He realized this man that he thought had, was living out abject evil actually thought he was doing the right thing actually thought what he was doing was a good thing and a righteous thing and a, and a noble thing and of course in 1988 the supreme court of canada agreed with him and in 2008 they awarded him the order of canada the highest civilian ward in canada here's a picture of it here in 2008 but it went a long way to helping Brian Stiller understand the humanity of this man that he was dealing with. And even though he didn't agree with him, I don't agree with him, you probably don't agree with him, we have to recognize this, that we have a responsibility to the people around us to love them whether we feel like hating them or not. Because it's not them we hate, it's their ideas we hate. Right? So let me just close with this one, one final thought, uh, is that, that we have to be engaging this world and not in a combative and an antagonistic and adversarial way. And Jesus was friends with sinners. He was friends with the tax collectors. And he was friends with the prostitutes. And he was, he was friends with, with all of these people that the, they called him a friend of sinners. And he didn't beat them over the head, telling them what they were doing was wrong. What he did was he just engaged them in their life and love with these people. And so here's what I started to do about 10 years ago. I mean, prior to 10 years ago, my kids were at home. They were annoying. And I had no social life because I just basically ran around after them. They had a social life. And in the last 10 years, we've been working on our social life. And one of the things I've been doing intentionally is I've been making friendships with non-Christian people like I've never had before. And I'm doing it on purpose because I believe every one of us needs to be an ambassador for Christ. And if we don't have non-Christian friends in this world, what are we doing? How are we going to share the gospel and with whom, right? And so I've been intentional about this, but I've been very careful about it. I'm not beating them over the head with the gospel. I'm just being a friend. And here's what's been fascinating. They all know I'm a pastor. They all know where I stand on most of these issues that we just talked about. I, I, you know, I, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I, I, I don't cuss. Uh, I, I don't, uh, you know, run around with other women, don't commit adultery, I haven't divorced Kathy yet, and, uh, <laughs> you know, the list, the list goes on and on with this, and they all know where I stand, and I haven't tried to force this down their throats, but we get into conversations, and we play tennis together, and we hang out together, and we talk about all these things, and the other day, this friend, it's probably been a friend for four or five years, something like that. We were sitting around, and the whole thing of Roe v. Wade came up, overturning Roe v. Wade. And he said something that kind of blew me away. And he said, you know, I've been pro-choice my whole life. But he says, I feel like I am changing my opinion on this. He says, my wife, who's Catholic, she's influencing and hanging out with Mark and hearing the other side of this story. He said, I think I've decided that I'm now pro-life. And I was so excited to see, he hasn't even come to Christ yet, but what has happened was he has begun to see through the example of others that there is something valid about our faith. And see, this is our job, people. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in the Lord for the pulling down of strongholds. We might lose the earthly cultural battles, but we're going to win the heavenly battle, and that's the one that matters. Let's stand together.
made this decision. I was only preaching once in July, so I was going to preach as long as I wanted. So there you go. So there you go. You got your money's worth. So let's do this. I want to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. I made this mention that we're all broken people. We're all sinners, every last one of us. And there are probably people in this room right now that are in that category that you have not taken and brought your sin to Jesus and allowed him to work it through. You have never made Jesus the Lord of your life. And it's so imperative that you make that decision of accepting what he did on the cross for you. And uh, he will receive you just as you are. But he does want to change you. And he wants to conform you into a Christ-like behavior. And that'll take some time. And he ain't finished with me yet. And he won't be done with you for a while either. But if you have not made that decision, I want to give you an opportunity today. With every head bowed, with every eye closed, nobody looking around. If you're feeling the tug today, that today is the day you invite Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior. I want you to just slip up your hand so I can see it. Just take a moment, raise your hand, let me see it, make that decision, and let Jesus know that today is your day, you're coming to him. All right, great. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to all pray together, because I said I wouldn't single anybody out. And so let's say this with all our heart. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you rescued me. I was broken. I'm still pretty broken. But you died on the cross for my sin. And you rose again on the third day. And you forever lived to be my Lord. And you're doing a work in me. I'm far from perfect. But help me to become the person of Christ that you've met me to be, met me to be. Help me to be an example to my world. Help me through good behavior and good works. Let my light shine to a world that is lost in darkness, without hope, without Christ. And I thank you that you've rescued me, and I'm on my way to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app. 